0: How many years would you guess the longest surviving dialysis patient in the U.S. received treatment? 15 years? 20? Would you believe me if I told you it was 46 years?
1: You know, we say that. Well, I never thought I'd live to see this day. Well, he really meant it. He meant it with empathy. He woke each day with a very grateful heart. He was very grateful to be given another day.
0: That's renal care expert and kidney patient advocate Terry Litchfield. I'm Sarah Jane Castro, Director of Marketing and Communications for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois, and your host for this edition of The Journey Continues. Terry joins us today with a remarkable story about her personal and professional passions. Terry, thank you so much for joining us on The Journey Continues. Can you tell us how your career in renal care and advocacy first began?
1: My career in renal care began when I got out of college. And I actually majored in economics and finance and found it was dreadfully boring. So I went back to Louisiana. My brother was on the board of the Kidney Foundation, and they had a patient services coordinator job open that I applied for and got. And I really fell in love with the whole idea of the kidney field and dialysis and decided to pursue a master's. My thesis was rehabilitation in the kidney patients. What influences success? Now, this was the late 1970s. This was a long time ago. This was before HIPAA, so patient privacy wasn't the big concern. It was. I worked for National Kidney Foundation, and they gave me a list of ten long-term patients that I could interview for my thesis. And one of them was a gentleman, Bill Litchfield, and he was the patient. The patients were incredible. So, long-term dialysis in 1977 was 10 years or more. And so he was the patient I couldn't find. The others, I was able to call and interview them. When I would call, he was never there. And I had only his office number. I finally asked his secretary, because she would say, Mr. Litchfield's out on a rig, Mr. Litchfield's in West Texas. And I was convinced I had the wrong patient. They'd given, they had simply given me the wrong number. And I asked, is he, is he on dialysis? And she said, what's that? So, remember, in those years, it wasn't common. And I tried to explain dialysis, which she was pretty confused. And then she goes, Well, he has a thing in his arm. And that's how I figured out, Well, this is the right person. And he had the most incredible attitude. And so he talked about, Yeah, dialysis is kind of a hobby to me. And I said, A hobby? And he said, yes, a hobby is something you do a couple of times a week and, you know, it's part of your life. And he said, you know, life may have given me lemons, but I like lemonade after all these years. <laughs> so that's how I got into, I was already in the profession, but I got to merge and I call it often, I had a vocation, but I also had an avocation. And so that's how it all got started.
0: So you mentioned your brother was working for the National Kidney Foundation. Did you have a family connection?
1: My brother was the president. So our family has the distinction. Five of our siblings have been affiliate presidents. That's the volunteer leadership. Wow. Our father was on dialysis before his death. He wasn't on it very long. He, didn't, he was a diabetic and he had had surgery. He ended up passing away. I mean, I sold kidney candy as a high schooler as a charity. So it it kind of ran in our blood and then after certainly after I married Bill my brothers and sisters chose that as one of their charities whether they were Texas affiliate, Louisiana affiliate and at the time my brother my brother served 20 years on the board of the NKF of Louisiana.
0: Wow. Why was kidney care so important for you to research then? Why was it important to you to study dialysis and kidney care at that time?
1: Well as a patient services coordinator I did mostly social events and fundraisers and it struck me that many of these patients were not retired but they didn't work and I found in talking to them they couldn't get jobs and they couldn't get retrained and it was perplexing to me and so that's when I decided I was working for the Kidney Foundation but I decided I wanted to pursue a master's And really focus on on what I always refer to as my kidney patients. Tell us what
0: dialysis was like at that point in the 70s when you were starting your research.
1: So when I was starting my research, a lot of patients were still on home. So when my husband started dialysis in 1968, the only place you could dialyze was either a hospital or the U.S. public service system had 10 national demonstration grants for home dialysis. And he was the first patient in Texas. His University of Texas medical branch got one of those grants and it was for home dialysis. You had no dialysis centers, even in the 70s. But in the late 60s, early 70s, there wasn't even Medicare funding. So it was really experimental. Even in the later 70s, when I was doing my master's, there were not many dialysis units, and there were still a lot of home patients, especially in my home state of Louisiana, which is fairly rural. It was different. The machines were, I'm just going to call them clunky. They were very large. They were very inefficient. So it was
0: early days for dialysis. Things were still a little experimental. That seems so hard to imagine, because now, you know, there's a dialysis center everywhere you look. It's hard to imagine that that just wasn't even the case. What happened to all of those patients who couldn't receive dialysis, who didn't get one of those grants?
1: They died. He always said he had an incredible zest for life. They had selection committees, and I don't know if you're even aware of that. The hospital had what was called a selection committee, It was lay people, people from the community, it was clergy, it was doctors, and they looked at the patients. So they got one machine in at a time. That first machine that came in, they had nine patients with renal failure, and they could only choose one, and they chose him. What made him remarkable, do you think? He always took the fact that he was the first as a privilege. He always basically said there were three things that he considers his success elements. The first was family. Family was everything to him. The second was faith. He had always had faith, no matter how crummy things could get. And then he was an engineer and adhered to his treatment regimen strictly. He never missed a dialysis. He charted his medications every day, his blood pressure, his vital signs. I had a database where I checked his access every day. And I'm his second wife. I was not his first wife. His first wife, he had a two-year-old and a three-month-old when his kidneys failed. Wow. 28 years old.
0: What was married life like? So you meet Bill in your research. You fall in love. What, what are those early days like? It's probably not the typical young married life, I would imagine, with him on dialysis.
1: I'll admit it was not, I was working in New Orleans, but I got a job at Texas Heart Institute in Houston, Texas. And in those days I was an associate administrator. I had three weeks of vacation that first year. That was a wonderful package. I had to use those entire three weeks to do home dialysis training. Wow. To be able to be his partner at home. Little did I know, and I was a hospital administrator But little did I know how many things go into doing home dialysis. You have equipment, you have supplies. Now, he was an engineer. So honestly, in those early days, he self-cannulated and he would just basically say, okay, don't touch anything. (laughs) The early generation patients, that's the other thing that's different about dialysis. Dialysis now is three to four hours. In the early years, the early machines and the dialyzers were very inefficient So they taught patients to dialyze overnight at home, 8 to 10 hours. Very slow dialysis. So the kidney machine was in our bedroom. It was right next to our bed. And he would hook himself up at night. I would help with the setup and the teardown. But he would put himself on the machine, and then he would go to sleep. Now, the first three months we were married, I did not go to sleep. The blood pump, it would make this thump, thump. Thump, and then alarms would go off and I would jump up and he would not even appear to wake up. He would hit a reset button and go back to sleep. It was really difficult. And then just the idea that your house kind of becomes a little dialysis clinic. We had one bedroom that was nothing but supplies. We lived in Houston, Texas. You couldn't keep any supplies in the garage. It would get 120, 130 degrees. They don't drop off one bag of saline that you need for treatment today. Once a month, it would be a truck from UTMB. They would put it in my garage, but then I would honestly wait till Bill came home and we would have to put it all away.
0: My goodness. It's like a a medical center, but it's also your home.
1: Like our, our master bathroom was always the water treatment system. And that's where we had the centrifuge because blood work—you'd have to, you know, once a month do blood work, and I'd have to draw the blood and uh, spin it down. We had a centrifuge that was—that was a nightmare. The day I didn't put a stopper on, oh no! And so blood spun all around in a pattern in that bathroom. Oh my goodness! You know, he always had a fix for something. You know, something would break, and he would say, "Oh, it's okay. I can fix that." And he would have one arm. With the tubing connected to dialysis, he would stop the machine and his other hand would have a tool, go get me my tool bag, and he would be fixing the machine.
0: He sounds like the perfect candidate for this kind of early day.
1: That is what the UTMB selection committee that we actually met them at the 20th anniversary. And they said, that's why we chose him, because he was an engineer. And the other thing is he had two very small children.
0: I'm sure that was important to make sure he was around for those children. It sounds like he was a very strong person who handled this with ease, but what was day-to-day like on dialysis for him?
1: He went to work. He worked till he retired. After dialysis, when he would wake up from the day after dialysis or the night after, I would tear down the machine, but he would get dressed and go to work on the weekends if he was doing anything in the yard because he had a graft in his arm that, you know, he would be cutting down trees and things like that. He made himself like a gauntlet for his arm to protect his access. Probably the biggest inconvenience and, and because you did home we did home dialysis, he wasn't locked to a schedule. He wasn't locked to an appointment. So if we wanted to go away for a long weekend, he would just dialyze a day early and really watch what he drank and what he ate. Sometimes if it was a longer trip, we would have to make arrangement. I was a hospital administrator, so I could make those arrangements in advance. AV access, when the graft would clot or something would happen to his access, was probably the most interruptive. You never expected it to happen, and in those days he had to go to the hospital, and sometimes they would have to keep him. I often say people would ask, what was it like being married to a dialysis patient Well, I don't know. I've never been married to anybody but a dialysis patient.
0: (laughs) It became day-to-day normal life.
1: It was. And he always said that dialysis should never keep you from doing something you want to do. But if there's something you don't want to do, it's a best darned excuse. There was many a time, and I hope nobody from our old churches are listening to this. <laughs> he would, they would ask him to be on this committee or another. And, and I would hear him say, Oh no, I can't do that. That's my dialysis day. And then a few weeks later, I'd say, I'd hear him say, Nope, can't can't serve on that group. That's the day before dialysis. And so I ask him, he gets off the phone, I go, Well, Bill, every day is either a dialysis day or the day before or after. He goes, Yeah. I said, well, you always give that excuse. He goes, yeah, I know that. You know that. They don't know that. (laughs) So he mentored many a patient, especially with home patients. They would come to our home. You know, even in those early days, many people think it's an urban legend that dialysis patients dialyzed before Congress to pass Medicare coverage for dialysis. That is not an urban legend. There were four patients, AAKP was called NAF long ago, they were four patients, Wilbur Mills, who was a reigning leader in Congress, Senate Ways and Means, he had a situation where when they were passing the Medicare legislation, he always allowed public comments. And these four patients, Shep Glazer leading it, but Bill and two other patients, they went Shep Glazer dialyzed before the Senate committee in the hearing room, and they all told their story that without permanent funding, they may not survive, and other patients would not survive. And so when they left, now the dialysate went outside the window of the Senate hearing building. That true moment changed the tide, and a month later, the The vote came and it passed. And so that truly changed the landscape of kidney care. And Bill was often asked, wow, you know, that was such a momentous occasion. And Bill said, we didn't know that. At the time, we were just kidney patients wanting to live. Now, they did follow up a few weeks later. I tell people this story. And they came, they went back to the Senate office building and they looked up at the beautiful limestone building and outside that hearing, outside the window, the dialysate had etched the limestone and killed every bit of green plants within a 10-foot area.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And he and Shep go look at each other and say, oh, I sure hope they didn't notice this. <laughs> so the Martin Wagner Award, which is a National Kidney Foundation National Volunteerism Award, he, he actually was awarded that in the late 70s. He never stopped giving back to a community that allowed him to live.
0: What a powerful moment for the kidney patients at home. That must have been to see Bill and three others dialyzing in Congress. That must have been so touching. Here are some people going up and speaking for all of us.
1: It was really interesting because at the time, Bill said nobody realized how momentous that day was. It wasn't because no one really gave it a good chance of the it getting tacked onto the Medicare bill. And when it did pass, it was um, it was amazing. And so patients knew that they would have a chance at life with Medicare coverage. He always tried to put back, and in his later years after retirement, he would always joke with people because he continued to give lectures and volunteer, but he said, you know, I am so proud that I have a wife. I have taken so much from the kidney. Well, I'm so proud. I have a wife that puts back in the well. Oh, that's so sweet. We had such an incredible life. He never let dialysis get in his way. When his company transferred him to Asia, he had put in for an Asian transfer And he came home and said, oh, I got the managing director of Asia job. And I'm like, thinking to myself, I didn't say it aloud. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, did you forget you're on dialysis? But, you know, he just said he was so happy. He had such joy in his his eyes. I said, okay, let's go. So we sold everything, put stuff in storage, took seven suitcases. One was filled with toys for our then five-year-old son. And we moved to Asia. I continued working. I worked for the World Health Organization, accelerating dialysis in the developing world because the developing world, most patients died. It's an age old issue with technology who lives, who dies, and who pays? You know, we had a ready machine, a portable machine, and a machine will travel. How did his
0: care change when you were living overseas?
1: He was very fortunate. We lived in Singapore. And so there were a number of U.S.-trained nephrologists, and so the care was the same, and he was still home. I don't think we missed anything.
0: He was on dialysis for 46 years, right?
1: He had a transplant for a brief period. Alex was three years old. So unfortunately, this was in the days before kidneys were screened for the CMV virus. Mm. And so he was very, very ill and missed a long time at work. And when this was even the days before the good anti-rejection drugs like cyclosporin, and I was at Texas Heart when they were doing the, the clinical trials on cyclosporin, and I really wanted him to get another kidney. And he said, oh no, I can't miss that much work again. In later years, when he started really suffering from the effects of long dialysis, you know, he had been, he had bone disease, he had amyloid disease that affected his joints. He started losing his vision, all related, the vision, we don't know what it was related to, but things related to his long time on dialysis. I begged him to get another kidney. And at that time, he was probably in his early 60s or late 50s. And he said, you know, as well as I do, there aren't enough. He said, what do you mean not enough? He said, there aren't enough organs for people that need them in this country. Certainly not kidneys. He said, the kidneys that are available need to be for the 30-year-olds that have their lives to live. I do well on dialysis. And I'm like, no, you know, as a wife, no. And he said, no, this is the right thing. We have to be respectful and we must do everything in our lives with morality and ethical consideration for others. He said, how would you feel if a 35-year-old with kids doesn't get a kidney and passes away because I got it? He said, no, we we have to be adults here. I guess his implication was I was not the adult. (laughs) I mean, he taught me to be a patient advocate. If I use my voice, others will hear and they will learn to speak. He said, you will raise other voices by sharing yours. Let's talk about that some. You've worn
0: so many different hats in your career. How did you get to where you are now? Walk us through
1: the path. We were in Houston for our first years of marriage, and I worked at Texas Heart, and I worked at MD Anderson and Texas Children's, just a typical administrator. And then when we went to Singapore, I loved working for WHO. I loved it. I would go into countries and assess... Were they ready for dialysis? For example, if their children died of diarrheal illnesses or they weren't able to immunize their children, or if they didn't have potable water, they really weren't ready for dialysis because the cost to operate and build one dialysis unit could immunize a hundred thousand children. And so I would have to make the hard reports that said not ready but I was able to develop a number of countries for their first out of hospital dialysis programs. I loved that. I felt like I was really helping countries get to the next level. And I was so proud of my US colleagues whenever I needed help, whenever I needed training. Imagine trying to teach a dialysis nurse how to perform dialysis when she has never seen it before. We returned stateside and then got recruited in the late 90s by Baxter Healthcare that was starting a renal disease management group and to manage kidney patients. So that was wonderful. But what we realized in that first iteration of a disease management program is that vascular access was going to really eat our lunch, that it was terribly costly and very inefficient. So we realized Baxter gave us money to start a pilot we called Lifeline which was for vascular access, and I was one of the four founders there. And we started vascular access out-of-hospital center system that at its heyday had almost 100 centers, and we changed the paradigm. Instead of vascular access, going to the hospital and waiting, if you were clotted, waiting to be declotted, freestanding centers where patients could go, get their dialysis access fixed and return back to their dialysis unit. And so I love that. I did that. That's where I retired from. And I was able to publish and present. When we built centers, when we did centers, we always used Bill as our guinea pig patient. He was our great yardstick for ethics. If we would do it for Bill, we should do it for everyone. If we would not do it to Bill... We shouldn't do it to anyone. And so he was the face of the patients we were trying to help. And I knew at a family level, a dialysis access emergency, usually the night before you're going on vacation, it impacts the family. We always tried to look on the bright side of things. So as he began to lose his vision, we always had this family rule. You know, we talked about stuff. I can remember Bill talking about, does my vision bother you? Mm-hmm. What makes you sad about me not being able to see anymore? And I said, well, it doesn't make me sad. I said, because you can't actually see how much weight I've gained. And <laughs> my husband never saw me gray. It was wonderful.
0: Uh, dialysis is hard on people. What do you think kept Bill on dialysis for 46 years and able to still do all the things he was able to do?
1: Well, I think first of all, I have to give the caveat. He was 28 years old and healthy, no other comorbid conditions, no diabetes, nothing. He was a very healthy young man. The only thing that was the problem were his kidneys. But I have to say over time, it was his inner strength. And he said he always got that from family and faith. He had said when his children were young and his kidneys failed, he only hoped he could see them through high school. That was his real long-term goal. Let me raise these children through high school. And what happened is we had Alex when the older kids were in high school. So that was an answer. He got another one. And so he got to see his kids grow up. He got to see grandchildren, marriages. And he said it once, I never imagined I would see this day. And I think it was when his oldest son got married. Never thought I'd live to see this day. You know, we say that. Well, I never thought I'd live to see this day. Well, he really meant it. He meant it with empathy. He woke each day with a very grateful heart. He was very grateful to be given another day. When he began losing his vision, it was central vision first. And he said, you know, I never realized how beautiful the sky or the flowers on the ground are, and how mm-hmm. the grass is different colors. So he could always see the real positive. He he also had the tenacity of a bulldog. So if something wasn't being done that he felt wasn't being done right, he was going to bring it up. He said this over and over again. You're responsible for making sure you adhere to your treatment regimen. Don't skip dialysis. Take your medicines. But you're also accountable for making sure that the people who are taking care of you are doing it in a way that is consistent with what you've either seen, heard, or read. So in his later years, when there would be an innovation in dialysis, I would read him the manuscript from the kidney journals. In the earlier years, he subscribed to all the kidney journals because he wanted to know what's new.
0: What do you think the general public gets wrong about kidney disease, kidney failure, patients living with kidney disease?
1: I think that what they get wrong is that the patients can't do anything for themselves because the patients can. Now, I have to say that a lot about patient empowerment is about patient education and patient engagement. And we absolutely have to do more about engaging and educating patients. You know, the pandemic, the number one disease, if you were hospitalized with COVID that led to death, was kidney disease. And so for the first time in 50 years, the kidney population on dialysis went down. First time in 50 years. It was almost a death sentence. If you got COVID and you were on dialysis and went to the hospital, the chances were good you were not going to get out. But I believe that Right now, the American Advancing Kidney Health Act that Trump signed several years ago that focuses on more home dialysis, more transplantation, there's even measures now available if you want to give a living donor kidney that they have reimbursement for expenses, even things like child care. We're finally getting our day in the limelight. Other diseases like breast cancer and stuff have always been well-funded, but now it's a time, it's a decade of the kidney. The other thing that is talked about now in kidney disease is the health inequities in kidney treatment and the fact that minorities historically have gotten fewer transplants and fewer... AV fistula, the preferred access, but we're talking about this now. And that's the only way we will address the systematic inequalities in healthcare that are related to a patient's gender or patient's race. And so those are the things that I see emerging. Kidney X funding an artificial kidney project that's both a mechanical and xenotransplantation can you imagine if we could have a pig or I always say, or a zebra kidney, but there's a lot of innovation being funded now.
0: There's a very exciting future ahead for kidney health and for kidney patients and advocates like yourself who've worked so tirelessly for years to see these kinds of things come to fruition.
1: It really is. You you have new technologies every year. I mean, I was the patient advocate to get a permanent access for dialysis. You need surgery, surgery on your arm. And it's painful, frankly. It's, you got to go to the hospital. And I remember Bill's upper arm, it was closed with staples. The incision was about six inches long. It was really painful, but there has been the development and the FDA approved and Medicare pays for percutaneous fistula creation devices. So it's literally a needle that goes in. And when it's finished, no incision, there's no scar, and they put a Band-Aid on it and you go home. One of the devices I was, they asked for me to be the patient advocate early on. And I just said, this is amazing. Because one of the things that seems really small in the scheme of things on dialysis is the cosmetic aspects of what people's arms look like when they're on dialysis. It may seem trivial to caregivers, but to patients, especially female patients, it really bothers them that they look different. The emerging technology is really exciting.
0: What's something unexpected you've learned in your 30 plus years of working with kidney patients? You've worn the hat of personal life and professional life. What's something unexpected that you've learned in all that time and all that experience?
1: I have to say the one thing that I've learned is don't give up on anybody. I have seen patients that everyone, if we had still had selection committees, they would have never been selected. And typically, I served on a board at a hospital, and they were getting ready to discharge a patient from the dialysis unit. That means kick him out. It's a polite word. And there was not another dialysis center anywhere near. And I just said, no, let's not. This is going to kill him. You know, this was a really mean old guy, <laughs> kind of abusive. And basically, we listened to him. And I'm very happy to say he turned around his behavior. The dialysis unit went the extra mile and said, okay, we'll keep him for three more months. So don't give up on anybody. Don't give up. Even though some days it looks like we're not making progress, just look back to the old days when those U.S. Public Health Service kidney machines came in one at a time. So we've made progress and just don't give up on anyone.
0: I think that's wonderful advice. As you look back on your career and your life with Bill, what are you most proud of?
1: Our family. That, you know, we... We raised a family. We did all the, all the things that families do. And kidney disease, I guess, ended up just for us being a hobby.
0: Terry, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with, any other advice or information you want to share?
1: If you do hear of a kidney bill or things that are lurking out there, that if you get asked to write a congressman or reach out to somebody, Support those legislative efforts because it's grassroots advocacy that got us where we are today. So, support it.
0: Wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Terry, for being here.
1: Well, thank you for asking me.
0: I'm so grateful to Terry for sharing her expertise and life experiences with us. Roughly 800,000 Americans have kidney failure, and about 70% of them are receiving dialysis treatments. Learn more about treatment modalities, advocacy, and the different types of dialysis by visiting our website at nkfi.org. I'm Sarah-Jane Castro, and this is The Journey Continues. Prevention is a key part of our mission at NKFI. That's why at the end of each episode, Dr. Melissa Prest offers a health or nutrition tip.
2: Here is today's nutrition tip about dining out. For people living with chronic kidney disease, dining outside of the home or ordering takeout can feel stressful because it can be difficult to navigate the menu for kidney-friendly food options. So how can you enjoy dining out and keep your kidney diet in mind? Do some homework before you order your food or eat at the restaurant. Many restaurants now include nutrition information on their websites or menus to help consumers make healthier for them food choices soups sauces and salad dressings will likely have added salt so be sure to check the nutrition information if available before you order and you can always call the restaurant and ask if it's possible to prepare the menu item you desire without added salt when you do order do it with a kidney friendly plate in mind by ordering a small mixed green salad dressed with oil and vinegar a steamed vegetable side a healthy protein that's baked or steamed and a grain serving if going with the plant-based protein option like a veggie burger ask if any preservatives have been added as these may increase the phosphorus and sodium content a safe sauce choice for most people following a kidney friendly diet is olive oil and garlic over rice or noodles be sure to keep your portions in check and ask for a to-go container when your food arrives put half of your main dish in the container before you even start to eat or if you're getting takeout portion out your meal on your own plates instead of eating out of the container. The National Kidney Foundation has a great resource called Dining Out with Confidence for people in CKD stages one through four and on dialysis. This resource can be found at kidney.org or you can call the NKFI office for a printed copy to be mailed to you. With today's nutrition tip, I'm Melissa Press, a registered dietitian nutritionist and the foundation dietitian for the National Kidney Foundation of Illinois.